Right now we are in a series, and that series is called... I'm waiting for it to pop up. It'll be, no, I'm sorry. I, you, know, you guys, yeah, okay. Gratitude, right? There it is, gratitude always. Um, and we're in Philippians and we're talking about being grateful and the fact that Christians have the ability to be able to be grateful in all circumstances, regardless of their circumstances, and what Paul tells us in Philippians about that. I cannot think of a better time of year to talk about being grateful than Thanksgiving, a time that we already stop and talk about the things we're thankful for. But so much of the time, we tend to talk about the things that are uh, circumstantial in our lives. That's most of the things that we often talk about. I'm grateful for the things going on in my life, for the stuff that I'm able to experience, for the people. Um, And what we realize in Philippians is that our gratefulness runs much much deeper than that, and it is more profound. And so we're wanting to gather the night before Thanksgiving and have a time of worship, having a time of hearing some testimony from people here whose lives God's been working in, and to just reflect on how grateful we truly are for Him. So definitely think about coming to that if you're in town for the holiday and you um, are free that night. Okay, if you have a Bible, it should be hopefully open to Philippians chapter 3. Um, I'm going to read through this passage, Philippians 3, 1 through 11, and then we'll kind of walk through it after that. I'm not going to put it up on the screen because it would be too small, the font. Um, Okay. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. And again, this is Paul. He's writing to the church in Philippi. He's writing from prison in Rome. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So in this passage, Paul's talking about something and it is confidence. He's talking about what he has confidence in and what we have confidence in. Now, we put confidence in things all the time. Confidence is faith, it's trust, it's relying on something. And the more important something is, the more confidence we have to put in it in order to truly trust it. I was telling, um, I was thinking about a time when I was in middle school and I was living with my grandma because my parents had moved and I was finishing out the semester moving with them. And so one Saturday, my grandma said, we're going to Aunt Sue and Uncle Bill's house. We're going to help them put up their Christmas lights. And I said, great, I love Aunt Sue and Uncle Bill. So we went to Aunt Sue and Uncle Bill's house. It's a really big, tall house, really very impressive, fancy, nice, big, tall house. And they said, um, th- that re- relates to the story. I don't just, I'm not just saying that. Um, and, and I get to their house and Uncle Bill says, we're going to put up Christmas lights. And, uh, and he goes off in the other room and has an argument with my aunt, which is kind of weird, but then he comes back 
back and he says, yes, okay, we're still going to put up Christmas lights. And then we go upstairs into the office uh, upstairs and he opens up a window and he climbs out the window. Kind of like a scene in a movie where like some high schooler is climbing out of their bedroom window. That's exactly what it looks like. My uncle climbs out the window and he climbs out onto his roof and it is really high off the ground. It's like 40 feet off of his cement driveway. And it's a very steeply sloping roof, if that's the right way to say that. And, you know, my uncle's a smart guy. He's no fool. So he wraps um, an extension cord around his waist, and he ties it. And then he wraps it around my waist, and and we tie it. And my uncle is significantly larger than me. And uh, he's like, you stay here in the office, and you can hand me lights and stuff like that, and then I'll be out here. Um, And he ends up having to lay down on the roof and hang over the front of it, and uh, so, so that like if he falls, you know, just the head's gonna go first. And he's hanging up Christmas lights. And my grandma comes out a couple times, and there's just a lot of like, a lot of this, and a lot of, you know, this, and like, you know, very angry and upset. And she's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, this is so terrible. This is so foolish. What are you doing? And he's like, no, I've got a rope. It's tied to Eddie, and he's in the office, and so he's fine. And, uh, and she's like, what are you doing? This is crazy. And then she's like, Sue is so angry. Sue won't even come out here. She won't even come out here. And uh, it's true. Sue wouldn't come out there, but you know where Sue would go is she would go upstairs in the office, and she would tell me what she thought of all this. And so I'm like standing there, you know, like, you know, what am I going to do, Aunt Sue? Um, and, uh, and she's like, this is crazy. You guys are crazy. This is terrible. It's so dangerous. And we got like one six foot section of lights put on his gutter. And then, um, and then every year after that, when I went back for Christmas, because we went to their house for Christmas, uh, they didn't put lights up on that part of the house anymore, which I thought was kind of weird. My, and my uncle was basically like, yeah, I realized that year that that probably wasn't the best idea. And I cannot tell you how many times I've been in situations like this where I like stop for a second and I look and I'm like, okay, so my whole life is in this extension cord that's tied to this person that was knotted this way by me, a non-Boy Scout who doesn't know how to tie knots. And I mean, I was talking to somebody after the first service who actually had like a really awful experience falling off a roof and um, was like, thanks for bringing that up, you know, in church. And, but this is like a very common thing for all of us. We are, we continually find ourselves in these situations where we are forced to put our confidence in things. In fact, all the time, all the time, we put confidence in things, right? I'm a super dramatic person. So I'm always thinking like, if I get on a bus, I'm putting my life in the hands of that bus driver, that my life is in their hands, right? If I get on an elevator, my confidence is in that elevator that's not gonna come crashing down. Do you notice where my mind goes every time I do anything? Is like, how's this gonna lead to my death, right? And, and, and I put my, con- and well, I think about this stuff all the time. And, and this is something that we do. We put our confidence in all kinds of things. It's the only way to live life. It's the only way to move forward, take a step forward most days, is to put our trust in things. And Paul's talking about in this passage is that exact thing. He's talking about what he, a pretty impressive guy, somebody who we probably have a lot that we can learn from, puts his confidence in, and how it isn't in typically what you would think. Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and this is the, the, um, the first thing that he says, is he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Now, now, right here, this is basically Paul summing up everything in Philippians that's come before this. Have joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. How can we have gratitude always? It's simple. Our joy is in the Lord. If our joy is in the Lord, then we will always be able to be grateful. And we will always be able to be joyful because our joyful is in something that is never changing and that is so much bigger than us. And that is a lot of what we've been hearing about throughout Philippians up till this point. So Paul's like, remember, have joy in the Lord. This is coming from a guy in prison saying, have joy in the Lord. I can write these things to you. 
And then he goes on and he says something extremely dramatic. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, Paul's saying this stuff, he's speaking so harshly because he's talking about a group of people that in his mind are incredibly dangerous for this church. Now, what he's talking about is a group of people called Judaizers. And in the Jewish faith, uh, there are the very uh, educated, which are the Pharisees. And some of the Pharisees are really legalistic. And some of those really legalistic Pharisees are even more extreme than the rest. And those people are called Judaizers. And this group of people would, whenever they interacted with groups of Christians, they would tell them how they could be more Jewish because, yeah, Jesus was Jewish and, you know, God's people up till now have always been Jewish and you guys seem to like, you know, what the Bible says about who God is. And so if you want to be one of God's people, then we'd be happy to tell you guys how you can be more like us, how you could be more Jewish. You see, the church at this time was made up of Gentiles in Philippi, which is people that were not Jewish. And so they come to hear the gospel. They come to follow this guy, Jesus. They're listening to the teaching of people like Paul. They become Christians. Their numbers grow. Lots of Gentiles become Christians. And then these Jewish people come in and they say, wouldn't you guys like to also, just to be safe, do a few things that can give you certainty in your mind that you're one of God's people, right? That, that, that he's very happy with you and that you're like in the right group. And I'm sure the people would be like, sure, yeah, why not? You know, what do we have to do? And then the Judaizers say, well, it's easy. You just have to get circumcised, you know? Excuse me? Um, yep, circumcision, that's how you do it. Now, for the Jews, this is easy because they do it on the eighth day. Um, and for an adult Gentile, probably not as easy, probably a very traumatic experience, okay? And so uh, these guys are coming into the church and they're basically saying to them, in order for you to be on the right path here, you know, better safe than sorry, let's be thorough here. You should be circumcised. And what that does is it makes you a Jewish person. And by being a Jew, you then are really a Christian. You're like a, you're like a really good Christian. Yeah, you could be a Christian before, but now you'll be like a really good Christian. You'll be a part of a group of people who God has loved and favored more than any other person up until this point in history. And you'll get to have the confidence of knowing that you're part of that group. Now, something interesting about the Jewish faith that we often mistaken um, is that it is not a legalistic faith. Uh, we spent a long time in Exodus this last year. And one of the things that was very clear throughout Exodus, God beginning his relationship with this large group of his people, birthing this nation and bringing them about to be his people, was that it was all entirely dependent upon grace. I mean, they, they would continually mess up and do things that were not what God called them to do. And God had continued to choose to be their God and use, his, use this group of people as his people. It wasn't because they were perfect. It wasn't because they followed laws. And even when he gave them laws, he didn't say, you have to perfectly follow these. Otherwise, I will never be your God again. God will continually choose to use grace and show grace towards his people. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. So the Jews were not by nature necessarily a legalistic group of people, but there were some who were. And even out of that group of people, there were some who were the most legalistic, which is this group. Paul does not like these guys. He can't stand them. We know that because of his language. He calls them dogs. And at the time, dogs were not like a Labrador retriever that plays fetch with you and sits at the foot of your bed. A dog, dogs were just these roving, wild, dirty animals 
that always wanted to eat your food and always wanted to get in your stuff and probably carried disease and sickness and you didn't want them anywhere near you or your family. So, you know, if you're off doing your thing with your, with your family and, you know, you don't look for too long of a time, maybe a dog kind of creeps in, you go, yeah, get out of here. You know, throw a rock at him or something. You're like, get out of here. I don't want you in here, right? That's what dogs were at the time. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, yeah, these guys might come in and you're thinking like, oh, hey, they, this is good. These people are good. They're impressive. They're Judaizers. People respect them. They're religious. If anybody wants to know how to be a good person, right, they would talk to one of these guys. Paul's like, they're like wild dogs just wandering in. Think of them as people that have sickness and disease and are just going to ruin what you have and don't let them anywhere near you. He calls them evildoers, right? Because you, you, think, you think, well, the only way that they would listen to these people is if they thought that they would actually bring about some kind of good. You know, if I listen to them and do the things they tell me to do and live the way they tell me to live, then I'll be a good person. I'll be better. And I can feel good about myself in that way. Paul says they're not bringing that either. They're evildoers. They're bringing about evil. They're actually bringing things that are the opposite of what God wants for this earth and for his people and for anyone to do in his name. And he even calls them mutilators of the flesh. Because this thing, circumcision, to him is just mutilation of the flesh, the way they're talking about it. You see, the nature of any kind of ritual or tradition, um, especially a ritual, is that the ones that you do make sense. And the ones that everyone else does are crazy, right? You look at other rituals and traditions and you go, that's weird. Why would somebody do that? Uh, including circumcision, you would look at it and you would maybe think like, whoa, okay, uh, that's a little bit extreme. That's like mutilation. What's the point of that? Uh, last week when Mitch was here and he was talking about their ministry in Eugene and being at the county fair and being the chaplain at the county fair, and he was showing pictures of the opening ceremonies and some of the things that were going on, the opening ceremonies, it's easy to look at those things and think, whoa, 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 that stuff's crazy, Right? That's not sacred, like the things that we do, right? When we, when we take communion, when we have things like baptism. And what Paul is saying to them is he's saying, what these guys are bringing to you, this idea of circumcision, is not a sacred thing. It is simply mutilation because of the spirit in which they're bringing it to you. So that's the people that are coming into your church that are trying to tell you to live this way. He has very negative things to say about them. Now, Paul brings this up a lot in the New Testament. He kind of goes after these people a lot. And so you got you to gotta wonder, was there some kind of an attraction to what they were talking about? Because it doesn't seem attractive. If someone showed up and said, hey, everybody, as adults, you need to get circumcised, uh, I would think it would be pretty easy to say no to that one. And yet, for some reason, Paul again and again and again speaks to it. And keep in mind, the Philippian church is a really great church. He loves these people. He says, you're a good church. I'm like so proud of you. I'm so happy with how things are going in your church. And yet, he's warning them against this group of people with all this really strong language. Why? Because he knows that there's something about either the message of the Judaizers or the state of the Philippian church or any person that would make them want to receive this thing. Because he knows that the nature of people who find Christ and find the gospel might be then to say, now I need to find religion. Now I need to clean my life up. Now I need to clean myself up. Now I need to get some, make some change happen so that I can be a better person because that's what the world expects. That's what I kind of would expect. That's what I associate with religion. The church in Philippi was also going through a tremendous amount of persecution. 
The Roman Empire thought that they were a joke. They thought that these Gentile Christians were weird. They did, took communion, which kind of sounded like eating flesh and drinking blood. They uh, called each other brother and sister, which sounded super weird and creepy. They met in homes and people didn't know what was going on when they were in these house church meetings. And so the Roman authorities just looked down upon them and, and, and persecuted them mercilessly. It's the reason why Paul is writing this letter. The reason he's writing this letter to the Philippian church is to say to them from prison, be encouraged, be joyful, have joy, take joy, even though you're being persecuted. So you imagine you're this group of people who are Gentiles, meaning you didn't grow up in the church, you didn't grow up with, with like the Jewish faith. And then you start to follow this guy, Jesus, that not a lot of people seem to like. And, uh, and it's hard to follow Jesus, and there's not a ton of people doing it. And then everybody in the Roman authority doesn't like that you're doing it and mocks you and makes fun of you. Then there's this other group of people, the Jewish people, and they're like, hey, come on, you can hang out with us. You can be a part of our group. Just get circumcised and follow some extra rules and worship a little bit differently and tack a few things on and, and then you'll be one of us, you know? That it's incredibly appealing, the idea of joining up with this other group by maybe just adding a few things. That in times of persecution, people might be inclined to go back to rituals and traditions and ways of being religious, which is often a thing that you see happen. The Jewish faith was its own culture. It was a historical tradition, and it was really attractive to a lot of people, and Paul knew that. He knew that they would be tempted. And so he's saying to them, you guys got to watch out for this. These guys are dogs. These guys are dangerous. Stay away. This is a really dangerous thing. Paul goes on, and he says this about the people. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying, we are the circumcision, meaning we are God's people, and we are purified. We are purified. Not the act of doing a physical thing purifies, but we are ourselves a purified group of people now. And he says, what makes us, how does he describe those people? He says, they worship by the Spirit of God and, the glory in Christ, and they glory in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? They worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. It means that, that their worship has nothing to do with the temple that they're in. It doesn't have to do with the big building that they might be in. It doesn't have to do with this big religious group of people. It doesn't have to do with the traditions and with the rituals or the history behind those things or the lineage of the people that came before them. Their worship is made possible for one reason. The Spirit of God is there in them. And so anywhere that they worship together, the Spirit of God is with them. That's who we are. We're a people who worship God wherever His Spirit resides with us. He also says we're a people who glory in Christ, meaning we give credit to Christ. We give the weight of things to Christ. We are a group of people who live in a way that's supposed to point people to Jesus, not to us. That doesn't say, look at how great we are. Look at how awesome I am. Look at how great this group of people I'm a part of is. But instead says, look at Christ. That you, they ought to look at us and they ought to see Christ and think Christ must be pretty amazing if a whole group of people are dedicating their entire lives to him and what they're saying that he's done for them. Paul says that if you have Jesus in your heart, you have the Holy Spirit in your life, then you have all you need to be God's people. And he says this, he says, we put no confidence in the flesh. The physical things that we do with the flesh, the following of rules and traditions, we put no confidence in those things. 
He goes on to explain why he is the expert to talk about this. Because you might go, okay, this guy's sitting in prison, is telling us not to have confidence in the flesh. Well, that's easy for him. He's sitting in prison. What's he ever done with his life? It's easy for a guy who's ended up like Paul to tell us not to worry about the, the way that people look at us and the way that we live our lives and the things that we do that they don't accomplish much. Paul goes on, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's listing off his qualifications and Paul means what he says, he's right. If anyone has any reason to say, I can boast in who I am, what I've accomplished, where I come from, and what I do, it's Paul. He's right. He said he's circumcised on the eighth day, which is the first thing that you did with a child to show that they were a part of your people. This would be like a baby dedication, bringing a baby up with a family and saying, we dedicate this baby, we intend to raise them up in the ways of the Lord, we desire to honor them, and then the whole church, would you get behind that? Can we all do this together? Yes, this is our intent, that they would be a part of this community. We want more than anything that this child would grow up and know Jesus and live for him. And we want to work towards that as intentionally as we can. Paul had that. He said of the people of Israel, which means he's of the nation of people who were God's people, that God chose to make himself known to so the rest of the world could know about him. He's like, I'm from those people. Now, this wouldn't work quite the same way today because Philippi is in a place called Macedonia. And chances are if somebody showed up here and they said, hey, I'm a Christian from Macedonia. We wouldn't be like, whoa, get up on the stage. We want to hear you speak to us because you know what's up. We'd be like, what? Massa what? You know, okay. You know, we don't even think of the same parts of the world anymore as being like the Christian parts of the world. We don't think of it that way. I have to wonder, like if, if there was a country, if there was a nation, if there was a group of people who did see themselves that way, I wonder who it would be. I wonder who would say, you know, we're God's people, We're the people that God wants to use to shine his light to the rest of the world, right? We're his chosen people, the people who have received his favor. Is it possible that we might say that about our own country? That we might say, you know, uh, I'm a person dedicated at birth, born as a Christian from America, right? Where the Christians come from. From the tribe of Benjamin, which is like a really well-known tribe within that group. Benjamin was Jacob's favorite son. It was one of the better tribes. He says, I'm from that tribe. This is like saying I come from one of the best families in the whole church, in the whole group, in the whole denomination. I'm, I come from good stock, you know. Generation after generation, my family's all been pastors or we've all been involved and I'm one of those people. And we all know how that works. Like, you can like, bar- you can like barely believe any of it and still be considered like a part of it if you're a part of the right family, right? Because that's just how it works in groups. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is like his education as to the law, he's a Pharisee. So he knew all of the laws and he learned them as early as he could. This is like saying, I went to Christian preschool, I went to Christian school, I went to Christian college, I learned everything I could learn, I have all the degrees to prove it. And, and then he says, and as, a, and as a person to the law, oh, I was a Pharisee, which means I lived it all. I mean, I spent my whole life trying desperately to follow every single law in the Old Testament. I did those things. You would have looked at me and said, very impressive, Paul. You're a great example 
of what it is to be an Israelite who is living out their faith perfectly as a representative of God. He says, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. You're like, what? That doesn't sound very much like zeal. It was really, it was a whole lot of zeal because Paul's basically going, while all the rest of you were sitting around doing nothing, I said, these people are here ruining the church and I went after them. I spent my, I dedicated my life to chasing down these crazy Christians and trying to prove that they were wrong and stoning them to death and putting them to death and putting them in prison. He's like, I dedicated my life to this thing. As to righteous under the law, I'm blameless. Paul is building this incredible resume, this great big pile of things, you know. This is like if a person were a Christian and they said, let me just show you how impressive of a Christian I am. We don't say these things out loud. We know better than to do that. But you would just build this big pile of things, you know. Well, you know, I came from this family and I'm from this church and I'm, you know, from, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been to these schools, I've done these things, I, I served in the church in this way, I, I led other people in this way, I've, I've memorized all these things and everyone knows that I know those things and people look up to me and I'm admirable. I'm really proud of all those different things. Paul calls this stuff confidence in the flesh. He says, if anyone has a reason to be confident in the flesh, I do. And this is what it looks like. And then he goes on and says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. This is absolutely insane what Paul's saying here. He's saying, I can tell you that whatever gain that these things seem to bring, when I'm honest with you about my own story and about my own life and about my own experience, I can tell you that these things I have to count as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Why? Because for me, they made it harder to see Christ. For me, they made it harder to see the gospel. And for that reason alone, I count them as loss. I consider them rubbish. I consider them garbage because they got in the way of me knowing Christ and knowing who he was. Paul is actually saying something that we can barely wrap our mind around. He's saying if we think that God actually cares about the family we come from and the knowledge that we have and our resume, if we think that the God of all creation who stands outside of time itself is impressed because we learned the Ten Commandments in preschool or we went to some Christian school, then we're wrong. He is not impressed by those things. In fact, he doesn't care about those things. In fact, Paul says, those are bad things if they get in the way of being able to see the gospel itself. Now, they're not bad things in and of themselves. They can be very good things if they lead us to Christ, if they lead us to see the gospel and how much we need it and to put our confidence in Jesus. But when we're honest, the more of those things that we have piled up in our lives, the more confidence we tend to want to put in those things and the less confidence that we tend to put in Christ himself and what he's done. And he says, listen, guys, this whole thing is about us trusting Jesus. That's what this is all about. So why should you not follow these guys? Because all they're telling you to do is trust in something other than Jesus and that as long as you deal with that, you'll be fine. And then someone else is going to come along and give you another thing and say, as long as you trust in this thing and not Jesus, as long as things are going this way, as long as you do this thing and accomplish this thing and learn this thing and earn this thing, you'll be good. Versus if you trust in Jesus, 
and you'll be justified. Paul's personal experience with these things is that he had all of them in his life. He was pursuing being a good person and doing the right thing by God. And yet, time after time, he's confronted with who Jesus is and what the gospel is, and he doesn't see it. He's stoning people who are some of the best preachers of the word that have ever lived. Meaning he's hearing the gospel presented to him in such a good way by people who are giving their lives for it and he's throwing the stones at them. That again and again and again he's encountering these people and this message and the gospel and hearing about this Jesus and for whatever reason his confidence in the flesh is making it impossible for him to actually say, I see the beauty of Jesus and I want him. And I see that confidence could only be in him and not in myself. In fact, what he's saying is that these things almost inoculated him to the gospel. It's like they were just enough to make it feel like he was on the right track and then to think that he had to stop paying attention and close his ears and close his eyes. And I think many of us know all too well that that's actually one of the things that we can see happen in the church the most. That the church itself can actually serve to inoculate people to the gospel and to putting confidence in Christ sometimes more effectively than to actually lead them to that thing. In fact, we do it in our own homes. We heap uh, Christian things and ideas and principles and ways of living and rules upon one another, thinking that they would lead us to Christ, but really inoculating us against him, saying, as long as our home does these things and I am like these things and I say these things and, I, and I'm perceived this way, then we'll be fine. And our confidence is in the flesh, and it's not in Christ himself. And so Paul says, I do all of this in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. He says, I get rid of all of these things. I throw them all away if it means I can have Christ. Because I know that true righteousness, that life itself is found in him as a person and not in any of these things. And so you look at this and you go, so then why on earth would anybody actually do any of this stuff? If confidence in the flesh is so much work, because it is, it's exhausting, it's so much work. It's so many rules and so much stuff, and it's, for many people, feeling like you're a failure before you start because you don't come from the right group of people or you don't have the right kind of a story or you're not used to the culture that you're supposed to now be a part of in this, in this, in this whole group. Why would people circumcise themselves if they didn't really, really need to? Why? Why would people do this? Why do we feel so prone so, so, so drawn to do this. And it is one word. This is dramatic. Look at that. I'm getting better with these. I'm going to do it again. There you go. Yeah, thanks, Jake. I learned, in the sur I learned in the first service that it was the third time that really got everybody. So satisfaction, guys. There we go. 
These things, somehow, in some sick, weird way, they bring satisfaction. That mutilation of the flesh itself brings satisfaction. That we deeply long for this feeling of ourselves and our lives. I just, I want to know that I'm good enough, that I'm doing the right thing, that I'm living the right way, that I'm on the right track. I want to know that God is looking at me and he's saying, yes, you're one of the good ones. And so I will do whatever I can to have that feeling. And unfortunately, for so long, people have thrown so many things out there to other people saying, in the name of God, saying, if you do this, God will be satisfied with you. If you do this, you can be satisfied with yourself. Why are you dissatisfied? Why are you not satisfied? Well, here's how you could be, by doing all of these things. And Paul says, that's putting confidence in the flesh. And do you know what that does? Is it gives us a false sense of satisfaction. It gives us a satisfaction in doing certain things, living a certain way, and ultimately just being a certain kind of a person, which is ultimately crushing and defeating. And Paul says, it's not real. I've got news for you. God is not looking down at you saying, you're great, you're doing your great job, you're on the right track. He's actually saying, the further that you get towards this, the further away from me that you become. And the only thing that feels better than the satisfaction that comes from knowing I'm on the right track is the satisfaction that comes from knowing I get to be a part of a group of people who are on the right track. Like I'm a part of some kind of a community and we're all on the right track, right? There's so many groups of people that, 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 that find so much joy and fulfillment in knowing we're better than everybody else. We're on the right track while everyone else is not. And there's satisfaction in that as a group which is what the Judaizers were saying, come on in, guys, come on in. The water's fine, you're gonna like it. Yeah, the Romans will treat you this way still. People will mock you, they'll look at you this way, but you can know that you're, that you're part of a group of people that are on the right track and that are doing the right thing. But it's ultimately still about superiority. It's about being better than the very people that are mocking you and persecuting you. Paul's not motivated by that. He's not living his life for that. There's a real satisfaction, a real, genuine, lasting, true, deep satisfaction that comes from having faith in Christ, from Christ himself, because the satisfaction isn't in myself, it isn't in what I've learned and discovered, it isn't what I've earned, it isn't what I've accomplished, it isn't where I've come from or the part of the group of people that I'm a part of. It comes from who Jesus is and saying, this is who Jesus is. I am satisfied in Christ because of what Christ has done. I don't need to keep working at it. I don't need to keep trying to earn it. And that is a deep and great sense of satisfaction that I can have. The other thing that we find satisfaction in that is so weird about this is we love to compare ourselves to other people, not just on the group level, but as individuals. We constantly feel this need to go, the only way I'm going to know I'm on the right track in some way in life, that my life's going okay, is if I know that I'm doing better than the person next to me or some of the other people next to me. I was talking to my mom this week, and we were talking about um, my aunts. So, you know, my mom has five sisters. So there's six of these crazy aunt ladies, okay? And 
They're, they're, they own it. They love it. But they're, uh, they're a very interesting group of ladies. Holidays are, are very exciting and fun and totally unpredictable. And all of the ants will basically say the same thing. If you're talking to one of them, they'll be like, Aunt Sue, the one I told you about before that got really mad at me, Uncle Bill, she's the normal one. She, we all, yeah, she's the normal one. She's good. So what it, what it is, every time you talk to one of the ants, they'll go, Sue and I are the only normal ones, you know? Sue and I are the only normal ones. And like everybody agrees she's normal and then they're normal, you know? And then all the other sisters like, man, they're nuts, you know? And like, it's become a joke now because everybody's just kind of like that, you know? Like, oh, they're crazy, you know? Not me though. I kind of I know what's going on, right? And I was talking to my mom about, about, about the gospel and we don't like always talk just about the gospel. We were talking about it in this one specific conversation and I was saying to her that like the, I said the crazy thing about the gospel is that like, the gospel means that you or your sisters are like, there is no, like, better or worse of the six sisters. And I'm like, isn't that the craziest idea in the world, right? Because if you want to talk about comparing yourself to other people, talk about families, right? I mean, is there any place in which, with siblings, it is easier to compare yourself to other people and go, how are they doing? How am I doing? Many of us, like, we've all agreed, the whole family's agreed, like, yeah, they've agreed, I'm the worst one, you know, and, uh, and we just, we know it, and it's fine, I'm not going to fight it anymore, I don't care anymore, it's fine, I don't care, and then some people, everybody in the family agrees, this one's the best, we all know, you know, Sue's the normal one or whatever, right, she's got the fancy Christmas lights up all over the top of her house. There's this need that we have to continually, like, place ourselves on some kind of a scale with all these other people that we live life with, that we're close to. And we find some sense of satisfaction from knowing that we can do that and that in doing that with other people that we can somehow be better. It's why we do all these things. It's why we heap all this stuff onto our lives. It's why we put confidence in the flesh. Because we think if I work hard enough and if I try hard enough and come up with some more things to do and become a part of the right group of people, then all know that I'm better than at least some of these other people in my life, that we can be better than some of these other families around us, that we as a group can be better than some of these other groups around us. The answer is to have confidence in Christ, not in the flesh. We're going to spend some time in worship, and we're going to take communion this morning. And uh, the way we're going to do that is there will just be some ushers up at the front and maybe in the back and they'll have communion and you can just come up and take it from them. You can take it back to your seat and you can take communion however you feel led over the next few songs as we sing and worship. The reason that we do this um, is because Jesus tells us to do it. Um, the Bible tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples, they took bread and they took wine and they ate it and they drank it. And Jesus said, as you do this, I want you to remember the sacrifice that I'm making for you. Do this as often, and as often as you do this, remember me and my sacrifice for you. There's a reason why we do this again and again and again. And we don't do it every week. It's because we don't want to take it for granted, and we don't want to lose sight of the meaning of this thing, the significance. The reason that we take communion is because we need a constant reminder of the fact that this isn't about what we can all do. This isn't about how hard we can all work and how smart we can all get and how impressive our lives can look in the end. That this is about what Christ has done for us. That that's the only thing that we can stand in. And that, and that confidence 
in Christ is the most important thing. And then we can look at our lives and we can say, are all these other things I'm doing in my life leading me towards putting more confidence in Christ? Are they leading me to depend on Him? Are they leading my kids to depend on Him? Are they leading my friends and neighbors to see that Jesus is the only hope I have? Or is this all in my own strength? As we spend some time worshiping and taking communion, I think that's something that we need to be thinking about and praying about. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and for Paul's words. Um, When I'm honest, I I confess um, how often I think of all these other things that Paul brags in and how rarely I think of Christ. That when I, when I look at all the thoughts that I have and the things that I'm motivated by, so often I'm thinking about all the other religious things that I do and all the other things I'm proud of and I'm investing in. And, and I spend less time thinking about my confidence and my hope in Christ himself. My mind isn't drawn to that. My, uh, it's just easier to do things and try to be better. And we're grateful for passages like this where Paul reminds us that all of the good things that can help us grow closer to you, that can help us see you more clearly and train others up in you and pass our faith even along to others um, can also lead us away from you if our confidence is in those things and not in Christ himself, Lord. And so that is our prayer this morning, that we would see that in our own lives, that we would be a group of people who would worship in your spirit and would see the glory go to Christ himself, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Father, we recognize that true power and strength and true life come not from gaining but surrendering, Lord. From um, learning to not live on our own strength and our own power, but to live on yours, to live through your Son. And Lord, that's the hardest for those of us who feel the most capable, the most capable at making things happen in life, at justifying ourselves and even being admired by others for the way that we live, Lord. And it seems easiest for those who are often the least capable, who are forced first to give up control and recognize that you really are what life is found in, not what they can do. And so I pray that we would come to see that regardless of the circumstances of our life, God, that we would be able to surrender all and that we would find strength and power in that. Lord, that in the end, that uh, you would look upon us and say what you said of your own son at his baptism, which is, here is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased, Lord. And that in knowing that, we would find deep satisfaction. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great week.